going to study the Holy Spirit as a subject, and then uh, Mark had made the statement, Mark Moore, that what he would really like to do is, is not only study it, but he'd like to do it in such a way that uh, the Holy Spirit and the providence of God, angels and all the, the way that God works is all tied into a unified whole, right? That not just to isolate it, but we're looking at the way God works, whether we're looking through the Holy Spirit or providence or, or angels and bringing it all together. Is that correct, Mark? And what I thought I'd do tonight is uh, go at it like a smorgasbord where we throw out some statements and respond and, and see where we are in our thinking and examine uh, some of the thinking that is around and then look at some information and uh, then go from that, let that determine exactly where, where we're going. And I'm doing it that way simply because it, that I know that the ones here tonight are, are all well studied and you've examined these subjects before and also we can approach it really uh, quite a bit different than if we had somebody that, that did not have this kind of background. And then after we throw it open, I'd like to start in the scriptures with Exodus with the first example we have of God telling somebody to take a message and uh, that person expected to believe it's from God. And then the second person we have that is uh, uh, supposed to take a message that is from God and get other people to believe it. And then other examples and, and, and then move on through the Bible that way. And then also as we move through, we'll see not only the uh, God's communicating some things about the Holy Spirit, but I think one thing to, to keep in mind too that when it comes to the point of uh, man's salvation or the spirit working things in the life of Christians, the question is not does the spirit play a part in these things. I honestly do not know of any believer that does not believe that the Holy Spirit plays a part both in man's conversion and in his spiritual development. The question is how. It's not does the Holy Spirit, but, but how does the Holy Spirit, and we'll look at the passages and all on that. And then uh, we'll look at uh, this, uh, the gifts in the New Testament. We know we have the miraculous gifts, and then there is the teaching that there is a gift that is not a miraculous gift, uh, that's something that dwells in the Christian law. And, and the question I'd like to raise is, uh, the, where are the passages of Scripture that differentiate between a miraculous gift and a so-called non-miraculous gift? In other words, is there such a statement in the New Testament as a non-miraculous gift? Or is there any differentiation that allows us to know that this person has a miraculous gift, but then all of them have uh, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit that is non-miraculous? And then what is involved when you make the statement non-miraculous? If it is non-miraculous, that means natural. And so then the question becomes, what is the non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, actually doing, and, and how, how is he doing this? Okay, I'm going to pause there.
and uh, the floor is open for anybody to respond, make any questions, uh, state anything that you'd like to examine uh, during the course of the study. I think sometimes when you study from a standpoint of um, maybe the viewpoint that that the Holy Spirit's work is done through the Word, that sometimes people feel like that you don't believe in, in um, the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay, but uh, when you make the statement that uh, the... Uh, Holy Spirit uh, does something through the Word that then you don't believe in the help of the Holy Spirit. And of course the answer from the other side would be that yes, you believe in uh, the Holy Spirit doing whatever the Scriptures credit the Holy Spirit with doing, but using the Word as a tool in the sense that Paul said the sword of the Spirit is the, uh, the Word of God. Uh, any other uh, comment or question for well in my own mind i have at this point uh, not made a decision about how i think it it works exactly i know that there are varying beliefs by people i know that some people believe it's in the word some people believe in a personal <laughs> indwelling that provides them with guidance and direction in my own case uh I don't feel like that uh, I know enough about it to be conclusive. Okay. I feel I feel the same way, except I feel opposite. I don't feel like I know enough to be conclusive, but I used to believe that it was through the Word, and in the last few years, I've leaned more toward believing in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Separate apart from the but, Word. But, my mind is certainly not closed to, to the other direction. Okay. I think it I think it's appealing to a lot of Christians to think that, that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit would be so. I, I, I think that's you know that, that's maybe one of the reasons why that's real real popular to think that that you would derive help from God in a in a way separate and apart from just reading, gaining knowledge, uh, applying that knowledge, that you would actually um, receive help in um, attaining um, the fruits of the Spirit, for instance, mm -hmm. and, and so forth. And so that's maybe one of the reasons why uh, that particular doctrine has tended to flourish in recent years. Right. I think you hit the nail on the head with that too, Mark. I think that's a real good statement. Uh, I agree with what you're saying. I believe that, that a lot of people want that. I think it is a comforting feeling to feel that you have some help separate from yourself uh, in, in developing those fruits, just like in the lesson Sunday, talking about the fruits of the Spirit, to think that I can pray to God and allow the Spirit <coughs> in some way separate from me to help me develop those qualities or even when you study the Bible to think that you've got more going for you than just your brain, that you've got some kind of help from the Holy Spirit. And uh, I agree, I think the concept initially is, uh, is appealing. And uh, that's why I think it's important to do what you suggested is uh, 
that to look at other things also, and I think if you don't look at some of these other things, like the providence of God and the work of angels and all, that, uh, that when you deal with the Holy Spirit and only influences through the Word, you can leave the impression that we just have man here in the Bible in a matter of chance. You know, and, and there's not, a, when we know how frail and finite we are, uh, it's hard to get the kind of comfort we would like from that. And I think that's, that's good. Um, one, one thing that, that I've thought a lot about, we, you know, we've studied this in the past with some, and, and I'd like to, uh, to look at how this affects how you pray. Because there's a lot of times that, that um, I mean, like I pray to be a better, better father or a better husband, but I mean, the question is, how is God going to help you do that? And right. if it's, and is it, am I asking for something that I shouldn't even be asking for, or, or am I asking in the wrong way? I mean, that. So how does, in a, in a way. The indwell in the spirit, or if it doesn't dwell or does not, has an effect on prayer. Right. And because I, I, I mean, I hear people pray for things, and uh, you know, like if you ask God to teach you something, well, if if he, he's going to do it in a miraculous way, then that's that's one way. But if if a lot of the responsibility of learning that comes back on you, then that that's something else to look at too. Right. So, in fact, Mark. This is a key point that you made, and uh, let me give you how the background on why this got to be such a, a big thing, and that from within our fellowship in the restoration movement, we really have been responsible for really bringing out a re-examination of this whole thing. Uh, <clears throat> most of the uh, early preachers that uh, started the restoration movement, uh, pleading for people to go back to just the New Testament and, and lay aside their creeds and all, one of the things that they had noticed is that uh, that preachers of different groups, maybe a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or whatever the group, they all stood up and announced that they were anointed by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit was leading them and they were spirit-filled and called by the Spirit. And they knew, just like uh, people like uh, Alexander Campbell and others who came from these various groups, they knew that division was a sin. And they knew that one of the evidences for the inspiration of the Bible was the unity. That if we went to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they were teaching different things and, and different doctrines and ideas, and there was conflict, there's no way we could be convinced that they were inspired. And the same with the Bible as a whole. And so we, we actually point to one of the evidences of the Bible being inspired, this remarkable unity that exists with all these plurality of writers over several thousand years in several languages, and yet we got this unified book. And yet we have preachers with, in all the denominations claiming that they were called by the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> guided by the Holy Spirit, and yet they're preaching doctrines that are totally variants. I mean, one preacher gets up and pleads, once saved, always saved. Another preacher claiming the Holy Spirit says that's false. One preacher was preaching sprinkling uh, by the Holy Spirit, another one preaching immersion. Uh, one preacher preaching you can have the miraculous gifts, another one saying no. One preacher preaching premillennialism, another one denying it. And all in one preacher saying that you should be a Baptist, another one a Methodist, you know. And, 
And so they point out the question become, could the Spirit be teaching? And they, and they all were in agreement the Spirit couldn't be teaching those conflicting things and all. And so the question became that uh, how were they going to come together? And so uh, as they looked at all the division, they, they came to the conclusion that the only way there would be unity is if Christians recognized the same source of authority. And, and all Christians were in agreement that these 66 books were, were inspired by God because of the evidences of the inspiration. And so then if you're going to use this as your authority, then you couldn't have this plus personal testimony and, and other, other creeds and everything. And so their entire plea was to go back to the Bible, but yet in making this plea, they were constantly running in uh, to conflict with these spirit-filled people that believed what they did because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Well, that background is what really caused the real close re-examination of everything about the Holy Spirit and caused a very critical looking at it. It's sort of like... A, I know in my life, I had to go back and, and relook a lot of things that I believed about fellowship because I, I saw too many instances of, of sincere, devout Christians that were split, uh, you know, over what seemed to be trivial matters because of their concept of fellowship. And so that motivated me to go back and rethink the whole thing. Well, this is what caused these guys to go back and rethink it. Now... My own opinion is the, the reason it's not as big a thing in the minds of a lot today in the church is that we somehow along the way have lost this plea for unity and this same concern of Christians being one and, and worshiping and practicing, you know, in and, 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 and the same way. And so therefore, that it, though the division has, has no longer become, been, is no longer a problem to us and we're willing to just... Uh, uh, let everybody pretty well go their, their own way. But if unity is something that is important to you, I suggest to you that you'll have to wind up studying this thing about the Holy Spirit because too many times when two people differ, they find out that the bottom line is this person feels what he does about this issue because the Holy Spirit has led him to that understanding. And if you believe that, or I believe, that when I read and study the Bible, the Holy Spirit is giving me guidance separate from my brain and the information. And then I arrive at a conclusion. Well, then, then if you come along and challenge that con conclusion, you're also challenging that. In other words, how could I be wrong if the Holy Spirit is leading me uh, in that? And if I preach under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, how can I be wrong? Uh, that uh, Barbara was, I was in a public discussion one time with a holiness preacher, and Barbara, I think, would remember this. The man's name was Albert Batts. And, of course, the people from our fellowship, when they're listening to the discussion, they got their Bibles open, and everything he says, they're checking it, just like they did with me. And he got nervous, and it really irritated him. And he finally just pointed and says, you all quit looking at your Bibles and listen to me. And uh, he was speaking, but what it was, when he would quote something from our fellowship, they were flipping over there, and if he didn't quote it right, or he only quoted part of it, they're looking up in those questions and shaking their head, and he wasn't used to that in his fellowship.
Well, see, our fellowship was based on that kind of preaching, uh, listenership approach, where when preachers taught, people didn't sit back and listen to them because they had an anointing of the Spirit, but they sit back and listen to them because they were quoting from the Bible, and anytime they had any doubts on anything, they were sitting there, and it, in, within our fellowship, it was not unusual at all to see half the congregation there flipping pages and checking him out and, and, and either nodding or shaking their head based on what they, what they found. But really, from the other viewpoint, why would you do that if the man speaking is really being guided by the Holy Spirit? Why be, if you're convinced he is, why would you be checking him out, you know, on everything like that uh, and challenging every single solitary statement he made? Uh, think of uh, we all are in agreement that the Holy Spirit has the is has responsible for revealing the mind of God to man. Would that be a safe statement to make that we're all in agreement on that? That uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul made the statement that nobody knows the mind of a man except the spirit of the man that's in him. Uh, you don't know what I'm thinking until my spirit searches out my mind and reveals it to you in words you can understand. And he says, in like matter, no one knows the mind of God except the spirit of God. And the spirit of God has searched out the mind of God and revealed it in words of the Spirit's choosing. And so a plain statement that a function of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the mind of God. Okay, we'd, we'd all be in, a, in, a, in agreement on that. Okay, then Jesus told the apostles that he would not leave them as orphans. Uh, this is John 14. And he said the Holy Spirit would uh, guide you into all truth and teach you all things. He says, I did not teach you all truth because you were not yet able to bear it, but the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And then he went on to say that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And this is in that discourse in John 13, John 14. Okay, what, are we in agreement on that? That he said to the, he'll bring to your remembrance and he'll guide you uh, into all truth. Okay, then he also said that uh, he would perform miracles among them in order to confirm those words were from God. Uh, we all in agreement there. The Holy Spirit bore witness with signs and wonders, uh, Acts 14 and verse 23. Uh, we have the statement that uh, uh, Jesus said that except I perform miracles, then you would have an excuse for not believing in me in uh, John 15, verse 24. And he called on miracles as evidence that what he said was from God. Is that, is that fair to say? So, so we're in agreement that the Holy Spirit's job is revealing the mind of God and that miracles uh, were one of the evidences, at least one of the evidences, that were used to confirm that that message was from God. Why would they need the miracles in that context to prove that that message was from God? If the message really and truly came from the Holy Spirit, and it was the truth, 
Why would they need miracles to confirm and prove that it was from God? The only way that, that anything can be proven to be from a supernatural being is that there be a supernatural uh, happening. I mean, it's the only way you could differentiate it from a natural, somebody just making something up and saying it's from God. Okay, is everybody agreeing with what Mark said? He said that uh, if the information purports to be from God, there is absolutely no possible way we could know it was from God, even though it is, without there being some kind of miraculous evidence that stands for that. Because anything less than the miraculous, the natural man could duplicate, and you would never know but the natural man pulled it right off the top of his head. Is that fair enough? That uh, you would need, uh, um, all right, throughout the Old and the New Testament, do we have find an examples of where people preached information and said it was from God, when in reality it wasn't? Right, remember in Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter, that he talked about the false prophets that would say God said, but then Jeremiah said God did not say that. And they were told to prove the prophets. Uh, remember Moses even warned them of false prophets and, and things like that. So there is statements there, both by Jesus and the apostles and the prophets, to challenge information. And there had to be some kind of evidence to know it's from God. Okay, now the question becomes this. If a person is speaking by inspiration today, let's say he has, uh, that he says he has the gift of wisdom or the, uh, the, or the gift of prophecy, if there is no kind of miraculous evidence whatsoever accompanying that, how could you know for sure that it was the truth, even if it was the truth? In other words, if I ask you uh, to do something, or uh, I said I've got a revelation from God, and, and God has said that the three of us need to sell up and sell out and leave this area and go over here to a, another area. And uh, you know this possibility that's actually in keeping with the will of God, but how would you go about determining whether I would just pull that off the top of my head or God really said that? Without some kind of evidence. In other words, even if it was, the truth from God, it really wouldn't help you any because you couldn't know. Uh, correct? It, it, in other words, it's, it's got to be more than just truth from God. It's got to be truth from God given in such a way that I can be confident uh, that, it's, that it's from God. And that's the, that in order for it to be acceptable. Okay, now turn over to uh, Exodus, the fourth chapter. And this is the first example we have of somebody that's being asked to take a message from God and that somebody else is expected to believe. Uh, Mark, how would you read that, please? The first nine verses of the fourth chapter. <clears throat> Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? 
Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Okay, now as we read the story, uh, we know that God is speaking to Moses, and Moses is confident that it's God talking to him, right? I mean, after all, it's a burning bush that has not been consumed, and God is talking, and, and he, he, there's no question in Moses' mind that this information comes from God. But when God tells him to take that information and go to Pharaoh and also to the Israelites with it, the first question that comes to his mind, he's a thinking person, is that uh, how are they going to know? I know it comes from you, but how are they? And, and so God didn't think that was unreasonable on Moses' part to think that way, did he? And so then uh, we find out that all of the miraculous signs that took place through Moses were done for the sole purpose of causing the Israelites to recognize him as a prophet of God and causing Pharaoh to recognize that he was a prophet of the true God. Is that an accurate statement that as we read the context that, the, that every single solitary miracle that was performed through Moses was real, the important thing was get that message out. But the point is the message has got to be believed. And all of these miracles and these things that take place take place to make believers out of these individuals, both the Israelites and the Egyptians, that Moses is a spokesman for God. Okay, and that, and is it also true that that one miracle was not enough? It, it took a plurality, that, that Pharaoh especially had to be convinced that these things were not coincidences, that, that he thought that, well, my magicians can do this, or maybe it's a coincidence. And even several times when he backed up and said, yes, I'll let you go, and then changed his mind, that he kept looking for some explanation, and he had to be convinced beyond any doubt in his mind that there was no explanation other than that this, this God here was, 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 the, was the true God. And the Israelites, you know, had to be convinced of that. All right, so is it safe to say that Moses came to believe without reservation in the true God and was willing to take a message without, and people were going to believe that message without any mystical thing happening to their mind other than information coming to that mind and evidence with that information. Is that what happens in the story? And, and that with that information and with that evidence, we see people coming to believe. And then of those that come to believe, some of them go ahead and put their trust in God. 
We see that in Caleb and Joshua and Aaron and Moses. And some of them, although they intellectually see these things, that when it comes to some certain situations uh, where the obstacle seems big that God wants them to overcome, they're still reluctant to put their trust in God. In other words, that we can see there's nothing mystical causing them to put their trust in God. Joshua and Caleb made a decision to trust, and the other ten spies saw the same things, and yet they still were reluctant to trust. And, and then God compliments two, condemns the other ten. And all evidence is that it, whether or not they trusted was strictly their choice, that God was giving them the evidence and confirming the information, but they had to make the decision in their own mind to trust. Is that fair? Were the magicians back there any different than today? I mean, do you think Pharaoh actually believed his magician could do those things? You know, when he did some of the things that Moses did, uh, was it the magician alone that knew it was trickery? Or, you know, I've, I've thought about that. You know. Yeah, I think they knew. In other words, all through history, uh, religions have had their, and they do today, have had their their false things uh, that they did, and they obviously could do a lot of different things through their magic arts, but God always overcame that. For example, they whatever they did to throw down uh, snakes to deceive, uh, and of course we knew from know from guys like David Copperfield and Houdini and people like that. I can see them do things that I honestly cannot explain, but I know there's an explanation, but I can't explain it. And uh, they did those things, but it was no accident. Then God turned around and his snakes gobbled up the others. And, uh, we, and then when they didn't respond to simple things, God finally left the magicians in the dust. In other words, the magicians were standing there in their boils and their sores pleading with Pharaoh that this guy's got something going for him that, that we don't. I think at first the, the magicians probably thought that Moses had no more going for him than what they had. And, uh, and I, I think they, had, they became convinced themselves. But all through the years, whether it was the witch doctor uh, of the Indians or the natives, they've always done things to deceive people to believe they had powers that really, you know, they did not I'd have. I'd say Pharaoh probably didn't believe believing, believe that they could do that, right? Right. I think he was taken by surprise that Moses could outdo his magicians. And remember the same thing is encountered when we have Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. That, uh, that right away that Nebuchadnezzar has his people that claim spiritual knowledge. and But there was a big contrast between Daniel and, and them. Like we have people today that believe in astrology and people yeah, that, right. like even the first lady you would think that. Well a lot. There are intelligent people that believe in astrology and they have it uh, in the newspaper. You can read about your signs and things like that. Uh, notice the people we knew it uh, where we come from, no names, that believed in uh, palm reading that would go to these ladies that would uh, read palms and pay them money and go regularly. And we're talking about people that were going to college and had good minds. And they would, uh, when we lived in Georgia, there were several palm readers down there around that town. Uh, so there's, there's Satan worshipers. There have always been people that would believe in things. And the question becomes, without some evidence that you could evaluate, how do you 
disassociate the true from the false. Uh, how would man be expected to evaluate and know for sure that one is from God and the other is not? Okay, now move up to Deuteronomy 18. Would you read this, uh, Deuteronomy 18 and verses 15 through 22? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own, bro own brothers. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see his great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. For a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, How can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what, I, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Okay, so right at, at this statement, see Moses is not going to be with them going into the land of Canaan. He's told them that. And so they're concerned. I mean, here is their great leader that's not going to be with them. But So he says, the Lord thy God is going to raise up other prophets like me. And he's going to speak to you. And uh, if you say in your heart, well, that's he anticipates that how do, how do we know whether the man's speaking from God or it comes off the top of his head. And so he uses this, that if he's from God, everything he says will come to pass. Throughout the history of the Israelite nation, from this point on, this was the mark of a Jewish prophet. And there's all kinds of writings and antiquity of people claiming prophetic utterances. But what sets the Bible apart, the Old Testament scriptures, over all of these writings is that you have actual prophecies stated about things that were in the future that came about exactly that way every time they were stated. And the Bible just simply stands as a unique book in that realm. But the point is, as we go through, these prophets themselves will call people. For example, uh, men like Isaiah will challenge them uh, to talk to your idols, tell, them, tell their prophets to, to tell us something about uh, the future and how it's going to be and things like that. But the point is that any time that God gave information, there was some kind of miraculous confirmation. It had to be miraculous because if it was anything short of miraculous, then you couldn't know but that a natural man was saying it. And, and there's never a time, to the best of my knowledge, never a time where people are, are called on to believe anything as purports from God without there being some kind of miraculous evidence that they could evaluate and know. I don't know a single time where anybody's called on to believe anything. Also, in every situation I'm aware of in the Old Testament, that uh, once that information was given and once the evidence stood behind it it, it, it was a matter of choice. People could be honest with it or they could reject it. 
they can know it and trust in it, or they can know it and not trust. For example, many of the Israelites still rejected the prophets of God, even with the prophecies that, that were there. Okay, now, come over to Joshua, the third chapter. And verse 7, and then 10 to 17. Joshua, third chapter, and verse uh, 7, and then 10 through 17. Would you read that Barbara, please? And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Gergesites, Am Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap, and a, up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the sea of the Atherbath, Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground and in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Okay, and then look at verse 14 of chapter 4. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life just as they had revered Moses. And then the beginning part of that is verse uh, uh, 7. And the Lord said to Joshua, I will begin to exalt you in the eyes so that they may know that I am with you. In other words, Joshua replaces Moses. Moses knew that nobody would believe what he had to say unless he had some evidence and God agreed with him. Now Joshua is replacing him, but God endorses him in a miraculous way. And so as Moses opened up the Red Sea, Joshua opened up the Jordan River, or God did through Joshua. And he purposely exalted Joshua so that the people would recognize and believe what he had to say. The reason the Jews took these first five books by Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, and reverenced them and respected them and meticulously copied them and brought them down through the generations is because they believed that both of these men were prophets of God because of the things that happened. 
Now, for the individual that was not there and didn't see those things, they have an evidence that's not conclusive. It'll have to be tied in with other things. But they have an evidence to start with. The least I can say is that I know something had to happen to cause the Israelite nation to reverence Moses and respect him as a prophet of God in order, in other words, in order for them to carry that down through the centuries and reverence his law and, and suffer all the persecution that they have and, and meticulously copy this. Something happened back there. And the Israelite nation to this day, even with all its deficiencies, uh, still stands and looks back to that event. And then when I look at Joshua and the continuity of the story, something happened to cause these people to reverence and follow Joshua. Now keep in mind, Moses and Joshua are giving them information that is contrary to every single solitary thing around them. Uh, the concept of a one God not being represented in an idolatrous way is absolutely unique to the world at this time. In other words, man had so far fallen from God that he had lost the concept of the one spiritual God that could not be represented in any way with idolatry. And so here's Moses and Joshua both teaching this to people that have been brought up in idolatry and they're following and they're reverencing that, that work. And then also, Moses does something else that Joshua continues. The concept of a religion with moral principles and teaching that you cannot be right with God except through the practice of morality, we take it for granted. It's unique to Judaism. In all of the pagan religions, I've got books in my library discussing every single pagan religion that we have any record of whatsoever. There's not a single solitary in one of them that has any moral principles to them whatsoever. The religion had nothing to do with morality. So here you have this very unique concept. And so God endorses it. People believe it because of the evidence. Now, as we follow these people, we find that they only believe when there is strong evidence. And even when the evidence is overwhelming, though, we find different levels of trust among them. In other words, it's not like they all, they all just trust in God. There will be select individuals that just absolutely put their trust in God and are willing to completely sit to, submit to his will. There will be others that see the same thing that are constantly straying over here and straying over there so far as the idolatrous practice is concerned. In other words, to be intellectually convinced was one thing, but then whether they decided to put their trust and to walk with God was still a decision that they made because we see different degrees of trust uh, within these people and we see blessings and consequences uh, dependent on the degree of trust they had. All right, now, think of your own background in studying all that we have so far through the law of Moses, through Joshua, going into this early period of history. Now let's ask the question, first of all, is there a greater grace, a greater fruit, uh, a greater idea, a uh, thing that man can have from a spiritual standpoint than trust in God? Is there anything that God wants to dwell within us that's more important than a willingness to trust him? Okay, and then we ask the question, how have these people come to that point?
of trust? Was there, is there any indication that there was something mystical, something separate from their brain or anything like that that caused them to trust? Or do we see information being given and evidence to prove that information is right? And then these people make the decision using their God-given intelligence and their, their God-given faculties and, and all, and they make the decision to either trust God or, or not trust Him. They saw the miracles. Okay, they saw, and, and then based on what they saw, they, they made the decision. Some of them saw and still made the decision to not that's trust what, That's what you, it's hard to understand, that they could see something like the Jordan that, you know, on, on over when it talks about Lazarus, the rich man and Lazarus, you know, God talks about that the people wouldn't believe me if somebody came back from the dead, so. Was all were not convinced. Would it be safe to say, based on what we have, that everybody was convinced that wanted to be convinced that for the honest person, that there was sufficient evidence? And that, uh, that I'm sort of like Brenda, though, like say the things that the magicians were able to create, you know, the snake thing or something. I can see that, but to actually see a river, so that's kind of. But but what would happen is that uh, just like with the prophecies, we'll get we can go to a statement in Isaiah. These people would sometimes attribute that to the other gods, like when they went into the land. These other people were claiming that Baal was God and Moloch was God, and they were attributing all these things to, to their God. And so they had to always contend with it. For example, uh, hold you, turn over here to Isaiah, the 48th chapter. Isaiah 48. And there's, there's also a suggestion that, I mean, anyone that trusts, I mean, like for us, a, a person who trusts that that demands that, that they're going to have to have a certain type of lifestyle. Right. And some people just aren't willing to do that. That's exactly right. In fact, if uh, somebody tries to persuade you to do something that you really don't want to do or to stop doing something that you really want to do, and they've got a lot of evidence behind it, uh, if you want to, can you find a way to rationalize and explain that away? Okay, look at the, uh, I don't think there's any better example than the, the officials of the tobacco companies that I am convinced beyond any doubt in my mind that smoking is harmful to your health, that, it's, uh, that it, it does cause cancer and, and heart problems and things like that. But they will stand up there and try to explain away, but they've got a lot on the line, don't they? There's some very big salaries and a tremendous amount of money, so you can have other reasons uh, that cause you to not want information and to try and try and explain that information away. Look at this in the 48th chapter. Uh, Alvin, would you read that please? Verses 3 through 5. I foretold the former things long ago by mouth announced them, and I have made them known. Then suddenly I acted came to pass, for I knew how stubborn you were, the sinews of your neck were iron, your forehead was brass, 
Therefore, I told you these things long ago before they happened. I announced them to you so that you could not say, My eye was good then, my wooden images and metal God obtained them. Okay, you can see that. Ordained them. Ordained them. You can see that obviously there were times when God did things now that they credited uh, to their idols and whatnot. And, and so he would tell them in advance, like for example, when uh, <coughs> Babylon defeats uh, uh, Judah and they have these other things that, that happen. Well, if God did not foretell these things, then when the event happened, the other prophet can come right along and interpret that and say, hey, Baal, Baal is the God of Babylon. Baal brought this about. You Israelites, the very fact that we defeated you and conquered you and destroyed your temple and carried you in captivity, that is evidence that our God, Baal, well, a lot of Israelites were convinced of that. But what the problem was that all the time they're saying that, you got Jeremiah here saying, hey, I told you so. I tell, and they knew it, that Jeremiah had been preaching this for years. And when e Ezekiel wound up in Babylon, he was constantly telling the people, look, every bit of this happened just like the prophets said it would. And then Daniel is right there in the palace making it clear to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you better humble yourself because my God will have you out there eating weeds. And he did. That uh, the, What he was letting them know is that no, don't. Don't you think you did it or your false gods did it? But the point is that people could look to any number of source and, and they could say coincidence or whatever. And it was always that overwhelming piece of evidence that, that was needed. But even with the evidence, if you didn't want it, what happened to Pharaoh after seeing the Red Sea and he gives in and he lets them go, but then he thinks about it. He comes right back, doesn't he? comes right back and, and he, he has to literally be destroyed. He's just simply not, not going to respond. And so it seems like that God gives sufficient evidence for the person that is willing to be honest and wants truth. But on the other hand, he, there is a limit that God draws where he just is not going to force it on people. And so if they still want to stand there and see the evidence and evaluate it with the minds that he's given them and reject it, he allows them the right to do so. And if they can be overwhelmed by the evidence and then say, I'm just not, still not going to put my complete trust in God, they, they still can do it. And we see this with Joshua and Caleb, the ten spies. The ten made a decision to not put their complete trust in God. Despite all they had seen, they looked at these people and said, there's no way we can take them. Joshua and Caleb saw the same thing, and they said, how can we miss? You know, the same God that did this can handle them too. But uh, the decision, though, of trust is a personal decision. And, and they have the evidence to confirm the information, but it, it was still a personal decision. Don't you think that other than the fact of, of somebody having feelings and 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 being mis mistaught or misguided into thinking that the Holy Spirit has um has guided them into this. Other than that, it, to my mind, it doesn't matter a lot if I believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding me. 
but it's doing it through the word as I recall things and I'm strengthened by those things and I'm strengthened by God's promises, etc. And that God works in providence on my behalf to bring me where I am. And lots of times we look back and see that in our lives and I think that builds our faith. So whether or not I believe that or the next person, you know, he thinks, well, it's some spirit that helps me. The, the result is the same, so it seems to me like it, it wouldn't be a big deal except for the danger in people uh, being um, misinterpreting uh, things to be the Holy Spirit that in very well may not be. Is that you, you can create, see what I believe the, the problem is, I think, there, I think the preachers involved in the restoration saw you know, the problem, that if I believe that the Holy Spirit is doing something in my mind, separate from information. I think that affects, uh, like, like Mark said, I think it affects the way I pray. I think it, it affects the way I study the scriptures. Uh, for example, when I study that, I don't have just one translation. I sit down with four or five translations before me. I've got commentators going. I've, I've got archeology span books. I've got everything, and I'm looking at everything. If I believed that the Holy Spirit just uh, in some way helped my understanding, separate from my mind, then I would have a tendency to read the Bible and say, God, enlighten me. And this is what a lot of people do. They read the Bible, and it's, it, it's uh, God, enlighten me. Or, or you know, the, 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 whole, the preachers will even say, the Holy Spirit laid this on my mind. Or the Spirit, just preach it out, and the Spirit will make application and all. And so... I feel that the way that we study the Bible and the way we pray, and then like Danny uh, had an ex excellent lesson this, this Sunday morning, you know, on the gifts and all. Uh, do you pray for patience and understanding and uh, all of those various uh, gifts, and then the Holy Spirit uh, makes them a part of your life? Or do you look at those qualities and say, God wants me to be patient, etc., and therefore you set out to work on those within your own personality in the same sense that Paul said, I buffet my own body and put it into subjection for fear that after preaching to others that I might be a castaway. And so it affects, to me, the way you think. And just like if you're having problems in your marriage, do you just pray? that you know God would get that straightened out in some way or do you look at it from the standpoint of each of us need to gather information and we need to talk and then we need to make an effort to do but I think it affects your attitude on all of that as to whether you believe you know that there's there's uh, something else there I think it also comes into play in the church when uh, regularly Alba experiences this on a regular basis, and it'll, it'll, it'll always be the case. But with elders, people are coming up, and, and they want to do things that seem good to them and seem right to them. Uh, and, and what do you do then uh, as determining whether or not they can do these things? Uh, if they're wanting the church to spend money on this or spend money on that or to do this, and, and, and they're thinking, well, this seems good. Well... If you feel that the Holy Spirit in some way is bearing you along and enlightening you and, and helping you understand, it seems to me that there would, you would have a tendency to want to do whatever it is 
because you felt like doing it and it seemed good as opposed to the other individual who feels that now whether or not this is the right thing we need to study the scriptures and see whether or not it is taught and whether this is something that we that we really ought to be doing. I think what Mark said too is, is it's a little bit more, co I mean if you'd like to think that that and maybe the other too puts a little bit more responsibility on us as far as to the degree that we partake of the Holy Spirit depends on how much we study and, and put God's Word into practice in our hearts and in our lives and so it, it becomes a little bit more responsible. Responsible, a matter of responsibility. How how bad do I want it? And maybe maybe that's kind of a fair thing too, from the standpoint of we can all be just as spiritual as we want to be, and and be just as filled with the Spirit as we want to be by partaking of His Word and thinking on spiritual matters and praying. And I believe all that stuff that y'all said. I mean, I've never felt that I got anything miraculous or I didn't have to do my part. I know where you're and, coming and, from, Brenda, because I feel that way. And, and I, you know, I, I'm really confused because I think, I got to thinking, <coughs> well, where did I start to make this change? And I yeah, one thing that's obvious to me, as much as I love Jubilee and everything that's happening there, I mean, I enjoy it. It's the most enjoyable three days of my year. I look forward to it. But one thing has been very conspicuous to me. It used to be uh, in the church that when I would go to lectureships and forums and those type of activities, the preachers were about divided 50-50 on whether they believed in the personal indwelling of the Spirit. And that was good because sometimes, for example, the Freed Hardeman lectureships, you have Guy Woods who did not believe in the personal indwelling of and Gus Nichols who did. But they loved one another and they were in fellowship, And but they would have some good-natured discussions. But see, those discussions cause young people like me to sit out here and look and you've got two equally intelligent, equally studied people that believe opposite on that. I get to hear both views, and that encourages me to go back and study this for myself. But if I had been in a situation where only one view was presented, then I would have just thought, well, everybody believes this. And so what is happening now, just like at, at Jubilee, every single solitary speaker, without exception, believes in the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, they, and, and each year it goes a little bit further. See, I believe that they believe further than what is coming out. In other words, I do believe that, that, that there is, there is a, a belief in the guidance of the Spirit and all, and I think it'll just keep going a little, a little further all the time. And I just, uh, it bothers me a little bit in that uh, there's, it, the fact that somebody believes in the personal indwelling doesn't phase me. It's a matter of choice and all. But when I begin to hear things in lessons where an individual is talking about it in a way that this is going to make you more spiritual, pray for an increase in faith, and, and you pray for these things that the Holy Spirit will do to you, or you can't, I hear things like, you can't do it, let the Holy Spirit do it for you. And I, and I heard a lesson on that just uh, that quit trying, you know, and everything like that. Just let the Holy Spirit change your heart and everything like that. Um, I, that is, um, it, it bothers me. And, and see, the, the vast majority, maybe 99% in the religious world at large, believes that. And uh, within our fellowship, it has been probably a 50-50 thing. 
Uh, and when I started out as a new Christian, I just said, well, it says you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's fine with me. And, it, and I thought people were trying to explain it away that didn't, uh, didn't see that. But then when I heard the arguments and examined them and, and read materials on both sides and, and began to look at it, you know, I changed. And I, I reached uh, the point where I felt that every single solitary time it talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It's talking about those miraculous gifts that those people had. They didn't have the New Testament. And like in Acts 2.38, he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? They've just heard him preach. And he quotes from Joel and says, this is happening to fulfill what Joel said. And then he, Joel said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will see visions, etc. And then he's hearing the apostles speak in languages that they didn't learn. So uh, what do you think of if you're in that audience and these people are speaking in languages they never learned and you see all the miraculous and they quote Joel and say this is the fulfillment and tell you that you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, personally, if they tell me that, I'm wanting something like they just told me I was going to have. Or I see, I'm wanting... Uh, some gift to speak in a language I didn't learn or to prophesy or perform a miracle or or, or something like that and uh, That's what would be on my mind if I heard that lesson But all I know is I just read it. They would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit fine but then I go further and I come and go into the book of Acts and, and I get all the way down to the uh, eighth chapter and I find that uh, Philip goes into Samaria and he preaches and converts some people. But they didn't, get the Holy, they didn't get the Holy Spirit. They didn't get the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then it says Peter and John came down. And in Acts 8, 14 through 17, it says Peter and John laid hands on them. And then as they laid hands on them, they received these gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then Simon, who had been converted from sorcery, looked at this and says he realized that the Holy Spirit was passed on through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And so he says, give me this authority, that whoever I lay my hands on, they can get it. And of course, they condemned him. But the point is that when I, when I just read the text, in order to find out how these gifts were passed on, I see apostles laying hands on people, and they receive these gifts of the Holy Spirit. And later on, I can see Paul at Ephesus laying hands on people, and, and, and they receive these gifts. In fact, what caused Paul to challenge the baptism of those people in Acts 19 is that he didn't see these gifts. And so he asked them, what baptism? And they said, well, John's baptism. And then he talked to them a little bit, baptized them, and laid hands on them. And then all of a sudden, they had these gifts too. But it was the very lack of gifts that caused Paul to challenge their baptism because he knew that the baptism that they were giving, they were baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins, but then they were imparting these miraculous gifts. And keep in mind, in the first century, they don't have a New Testament. There's no Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or anything like that. And so when you convert a church, all they've got is the Old Testament scriptures. But when the apostles would give these gifts of the Holy Spirit, the person with the gift of prophecy, and these other gifts, they would teach the people. But then they had to have the miracles there to prove that that teaching was from God. And so what I think happens today 
is that people go back to those passages where it talks about Christians having the gift of the Holy Spirit, which in reality was a miraculous gift that they had, and it was given the word and confirming the word. And then they read that as if it's spoken to them today, you know, that they received the gift of the Holy Spirit too, just like, just like they did. And so they, then you say, well, where are the miracles? And they say, well, we have a non-miraculous gift. Well, first of all, I don't understand non-miraculous gift. If it is non-miraculous, what is the gift? You know, if and and uh, and if it is in you and there's no miracle, how do I know it's in you? And if it is in you, then I begin to think, what is he doing? And I said, well, he he helps us understand, you know, that uh, you know the spirit. And I'm thinking. The only way I understand anything is when I read it and study it. And over the years, there's been a number of things where I really made some blunders that I, I preached things for several years sometimes. And then through study, came to the conclusion that I was wrong and I had to back up and apologize. And so I'm thinking, where was the Holy Spirit? You know, I didn't get any understanding till I, till I just kept studying and studying until I saw, you know, that particular point and then I corrected it when I saw it. And over the years, it's, it's like any time I've come to understand anything better, it's only after a lot of study, and it's always been the information that led to a better understanding. And then somebody will say, well, it brings to our remembrance. You know, well, uh, and sometimes they'll pray for the preacher, God to give him a happy recollection <laughs> of what he's going to say, <laughs> and, and bring to his remembrance. Well, Happy recollection. But uh, the, uh, the thing of it is, I'm saying that uh, I'm thinking, well, it is non-miraculous. Uh, if there's something being brought to my memory that I couldn't remember on my own, that is separate from the laws of nature, you know. But the, the problem there is that he was speaking to the apostles, and he had taught them for three and a half years, and they couldn't remember everything. So he said, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all I have taught you. Well, they didn't have a written word either. Well, right. G, right, and Jesus hasn't taught me anything, though. There's nothing to bring to my remembrance that Jesus taught me because he hasn't taught me anything. I've learned by what the apostles wrote, okay? So then I asked myself the question, well, does he bring to our remembrance today? Well, if he does, he does, definitely does in different degrees because some of us have better remembrance than others. And my own experience is, is the only way I remember things is if I read them and look at them in a repetitious way. And my seek, my method for memory is, is no secret, it's repetition. And, and so if I, if I want to memorize a passage of scripture, I read it over four or five times, and I say it over and over in my mind un, until I get it. And uh, when I speak, there's nothing that comes out of my mouth that I haven't read and studied and, and thought about, and invariably I wind up sitting down thinking, oop, I forgot that point, or I forgot this point, you know, or, 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 or whatever. I've never had the experience, uh, but that I'll say that I forgot something. And most uh, preachers that will, will say this are using what when they speak? Notes. Using notes. Okay. they got the verses all written down and on. I think, well, if the Holy Spirit is bringing to your remembrance, why the notes, you know, that uh, 
did Peter have notes when he spoke on Pentecost? You know, and he was, uh, and and this was flowing out. I think maybe I'm not different from a lot of people. I I think that a lot of people maybe have thought the same way I've thought in times past. And it's like sometimes it's like I would have just liked for a plain statement. Of course, we interpret 1 Corinthians 13 to say, you know, that these things were done away with and and all. But I, I think... You just crave for saying, well, this was, you know, this was during that time. Now, no longer it's going to be. And then you think, though, of some other scriptures that we, we have to work to interpret, like even the Lord's Supper every first day of the week or not washing the feet now or whatever it might be. And so you think, well, this is just because that we haven't been taught that, that it gives us a little bit of a problem. Yeah. The, um, if you... Okay. The, the, the thing is, like on, like you said, on, like on the marriage, for instance, that you know that that you have to both of you sit down and you have to communicate and you have, both have to actually work on it and so forth like that. Well, even the people who believe in that in the Holy Spirit would agree that you would have to do that. Okay, so there's no there's no difference there in terms, you know. I mean, the people say you have to you have to be motivated, you have to have a desire to to be better at whatever you're working on, and so forth. But then there's this last little oomph that the Holy Spirit gives you to, to take you over the edge that 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 the person that's not a Christian would not have. Okay. Let's look at uh, when they, they say that, first of all, we nail down that uh, there's no greater thing that God wants in our mind than trust, right? And that faith comes about from evaluating information, right? Faith comes by hearing the word. Uh, he said that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they call on him whom they don't believe? How shall they believe in sex day except a preacher be sent? And then, so we see the, those who take the glad tidings of the gospel of peace, and faith comes by hearing the, the word of God. So, the faith comes from uh, examining the, the information and then making a decision. Now, on the day of Pentecost, they had to make a decision based on what he said, correct? And he said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. And then they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? In Acts chapter 7, people stoned Stephen to death for preaching the same sermon that, uh, that Peter and the apostles did on Pentecost. So they hear information. All right, I'm saying that the gift of the Holy Spirit, let's say that it is this non-miraculous indwelling. It doesn't come until after baptism, right? But what have they done without any indwelling of the Spirit whatsoever? Because every, uh, everybody's saying that it doesn't come until after you're baptized. You know, repent and be baptized and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What has been accomplished in their mind before they've baptized? They believe. They believe, right? No, no gift of the Holy Spirit. The information they've evaluated and they've made a decision to trust. They've repented. And the entire Christian system focuses on this thing of believe and repentance. Paul said, I preach. Uh, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 21. And people are brought to repentance and belief in Christ 
by hearing information and they make the decision and they act on it and then they get this gift over here okay so we know they don't need this gift to believe because they've already done it without it we know they don't need it to repent because they've already done we know they don't need it to understand because look at what you have to understand to become a christian you've got to be able to evaluate the evidence to believe in god with your own mind and, and David sure did it uh, with, with his own mind. He evaluated the evidence and said, The fool has said there is no God. And, and so, and Paul said that even the Gentile was without excuse. So you had to, had to use your mind to, to believe in God. All right? Look at what they had to be able to understand. That this sermon was chock full of prophecies. And so they had to be able to evaluate these prophecies in their context, know they were written in advance, and see the fulfillment in Christ. And they had to be able to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, and that he fulfilled all those things, and that, that he was their sin offering, and that they were all sinners. I mean, what I'm trying to say is, look at how many things that these people have to understand in order to become a Christian, and they don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, I guess it concerns me. I was I was very young, and I know I didn't evaluate all that stuff. I just grew up in in church, and I just I just believed, you know. Well, you you really did in a in an intuitive way. Yeah. You, uh, you just did, you your setting was so natural. Yeah. That you did it in a natural way. In other words. You had the evidences of lives of people uh, that you could see that, hey, this way of life works. You had been taught Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you knew there was four stories telling the, the same thing. There were four witnesses there. And you had read in Matthew or heard them say that this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. It's you, you had never called it evidence or thought of it in a sophisticated way because of the environment you were in. But in reality, you did have a lot of, your mind was acting on evidences. Uh, for example, ask yourself the question that if in reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you caught Jesus telling a lie and then telling them to tell the truth, or you caught Jesus looking lustfully like the last temptation at Mary or something like that, or you caught Jesus uh, being deceitful in some way, you would not buy into him as a perfect person. In other words, when you heard, looked at that life, your mind was saying this is a perfect person. And, and so I'm saying all of that was evidence. And when you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, what if he was teaching you to lie or to cheat or to steal? Then you wouldn't have bought into him. But you have a conscience, and, and everything he said just simply rang a bell of truth in your heart. So I'm saying you had many more evidences than you just didn't call it evidence and all, but that uh, a lot of what I specifically call evidences, Christians have experienced. They just didn't call it that, you know, at the time, but, but yet they did experience those things. And had I come from the same background, I'm sure it would have been just as natural for me, you know, but, it, but my background was such that, uh, that I was challenging uh, a lot of things, you know, with, for, for different reasons. I, I guess I have thought that if there is an indwelling, it would come, the way that it would aid would be in, you know, in a decision-making process and, and guidance and direction and giving you uh, ideas and creativity to help you solve problems. Uh, you know, it would be through those avenues that the Lord, it would be through the avenue of the Holy Spirit. 
And I would think, in fact, uh, I, yeah, I would feel the same way. This, but when I look at it and I say, well, I'm going to find the passages that tell what the Holy Spirit does. And that every time I find a passage that explains its function, it's always reveal and confirm. Reveal and confirm. Reveal and, and confirm. And then when I look at the decisions, I see like this big debate that takes place in Acts 15, where they're debating about circumcision. And they've got a real hot debate going. And all these people have these gifts of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the real miraculous, like Paul is talking about all the miracles wrought through him, and Peter is. And there's James sitting over, and he's listening to Paul, and he's listening to Peter, and he's read the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, it's like the lights come on, and he quotes Amos, and he says, hey, everything you're saying is in harmony with what Amos said. And then he goes ahead, and, and now he, he understands this. But the point is that the church had been in existence for 16 years, and they'd been fussing and fighting, and, and then it's like the, the, it finally sank in. And when Peter came to see that the Gentile was going to be heir with the Jew, after he has the vision, and Cornelius has a vision. And they come and get Peter. And they talk to Cornelius. And they bring them together. And Cornelius tells his story. And Peter realizes that this is, he compares it with what he saw. Then it's like the lights come on and you have Peter saying, now I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth God and worketh righteousness. So I'm saying this great decision to baptize the Gentiles came about as a result of more and more information. And then finally the information was such that it was conclusive to him. And so he says, now I perceive, you know, and he makes the decision. But even after he makes the decision, Paul has come back later and rebuked Peter, who isn't living up to the very decision that he made, that it's contrary to others around him, that uh, they still don't want to accept the Gentile. And Paul has to rebuke him before the, the entire congregation. So it's like he just, he constantly had to struggle with that himself, even though he saw it, you know, and made that observation. How, how would you think that God would uh, help you with uh, ideas and things like that? All right, I believe the, the providence, and that'll be the next part of the study, is like when Mark was talking about putting it all together. I believe the providence of God allows us to have contact with all the information. And so far as the, the, any spirit, God is the father of our spirit. He all, we already have a spirit that's from God. And God gave us our intelligence. And I believe that every normal human being has already the God... In other words, I look at my intelligence as a gift of God. And I believe that, that human beings are the top of God's creation, were made in the image of God, and I believe God has given us the intellectual capacity to evaluate information. So, and, you, so you would come from, this, from the outside and would say that God would, the way that God would provide you with these ideas and things, that he would put you in contact through providence, so the information that you need in order to be able to receive the information and to to act on. That's how you, that's how you would get your ideas for decision-making purposes. It wouldn't come from, it wouldn't come from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right. It would come from God's interaction in the providential way. Right. And the, the biggest thing I've got is, is right here. 
In other words, the, the Holy Spirit has revealed the mind of God. The only thing that when I read archaeology or history or anything else, I read them as works of men that have to be evaluated. And, and I have to use my God-given intelligence to evaluate the truth. And it's the only thing that I read as inspiration from God is this right here. Maybe problems is more of what? That's, in, that's inspiration. But see, like, like wisdom, for instance. Uh, I, mean, I was just looking at that. See, James says, James, James says, if you lack wisdom, pray. For wisdom, God will give it to you. Generously, nothing doubting, nothing wavering, right. and so forth. So I think you have to come from the conclusion. You have to come to the conclusion that if you pray for wisdom, God will give you wisdom. And it says give, I think. I just read it. Right. Well, it's not a question that God gives so, wisdom. So to, the question is, how does He do so, it? So, so I mean, we can pray, and we can pray that we get wisdom because it says that for sure. If any man, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives. I'll emphasize the word gives, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. So what we should be doing, I guess, is um, instead of, I guess, looking from within, maybe we should look more from without. Well, I believe you look from within. Without, from within but what I'm saying is, from within, but if you take that approach, you can't, you can't expect to get anything from God. Well, what I'm saying is, within, you already are made in the image of God. Well, and God has given us conscience, and, and then we have intellect, and, and we have will. So I'm saying that all these tools, God has, in other words, a lot of things that people accredit to the Holy Spirit, I believe you already have, that we are made in the image of God. And even when we're separated from God and not into Christ, that does not stop the fact that we are made in the image of God. And that's why that uh, Paul even said that the Gentile was without excuse and not believing in God, that he has the intellectual capacity to evaluate the information and know that a supreme being exists. And then he said the Gentile was without excuse for his sin because he said in and of their own nature, the way God made them, that they have the ability to perceive, you know, certain rights and wrongs. Right, but if we ask for wisdom and expect God to give us wisdom, how would we expect, or how would, where would we expect it to come from? How would we expect God to give it to us? I mean, we can pray for that, and if we don't doubt, we can, we can have great anticipation okay. that we will receive wisdom from God. All right, and the first question we're going to have to answer is, what is wisdom? So we know what we're looking for. Be able to discern what to decision to make. Uh, wisdom is the uh, proper application of, uh, of uh, knowledge. Of knowledge and information. Okay. The proper application of knowledge and information, all right? Uh, Jesus, after the Sermon on the Mount, pictured the person that listened to him and did that as being a wise person. And the person that did not was foolish. And all through Proverbs, wisdom is the person that acts upon the truths that's been revealed and all, and, and the foolish person is one that does not. Is that, is that right? And he well, even that personifies would be, that would wisdom. That's right, but we've got a little bit of a hang-up here with the fact that we can pray and get something. 
Oh, yeah, I believe in, see, I believe in praying for faith. You know, the fact that we pray here, I mean, we can pray for this. It's very specific. Right. We can pray and get it. So I guess it's how you get it. Right. See, the thing it is, I believe that you, in other words, I believe you can pray, Lord, increase my faith. And, uh, but I'm not looking. My trust is an act of my own will. But if I have doubts about something, like the guy that said, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Well, the only way I know that Jesus helped unbelief was through evidence because even after the miracles, he said, you got one biggie coming. And like whatever happened to Jonah is going to happen to me. And if you don't believe, if that doesn't convince you, then nothing else will. And so that, and he, when John the Baptist began to have doubt about Jesus, uh, he sent his disciple and he says, he performed some miracles. He says, you go tell John what you've seen. The blind are given their sight. The deaf hear. The dead are raised, etc. Lepers are cured. And so, through that information, John would regain his trust, you know, in in Christ. But I think that uh, that on faith, I believe that that you're praying for the the opportunities to not only have the information and everything like that, but for the things to happen to cause you to trust in God. In other words. It may be that being too self-sufficient is not good for my faith, because there's, and remember Paul made the statement in 2 Corinthians that whenever he, he that, that God did the, allow these things to happen so that they would put their trust in him. And so it could be that by being in an affluent society where it's easy to think you're somewhat self-sufficient, there's a tendency to walk where you more and more just put your trust in yourself and that maybe situations in life where you can't do that actually cause you to put your trust more in God. But then as you put your trust more in God and act on it, and then it comes out just the way God says, then your faith grows by leaps and bounds and you're willing to go even further next time. And so I think that when I pray for more faith, and I do, I pray, I want to have absolute, complete faith, and I think you just still continue to grow. But what I mean is, I'm not praying for more intellectual belief. I have that. But I'm, I'm praying for more of the capacity to turn loose and just totally trust in God. And I haven't reached that point yet. In other words, just like the song says, you know, you get to the point of, of less of self and all of the Lord. Well, I haven't reached the last stanza yet. You know, it's, I still got too much of me there, and I know it. And I think any situation in life, and, and the problem with praying is that uh, those situations that, that cause what God wants are not always pleasant. And, and so, and the wisdom, I think the same way. I think it is experiences where you make your decision based on God's teaching and it comes about and you see that it's right and I think you're a wiser person as a, as a result of it well if, if you don't if you don't uh, use the if you don't have an indwelling to help you make discernment then you are going to have to rely on yourself to make the discernment yourself so at that point really you're going to have to develop more faith and trust in yourself well, because if you don't develop more faith and trust in yourself, then see, you're, then you you will lose the ability and the capacity to make the decision. Because okay. The decision is coming 
from the information and intellect that you have within you. Yeah, but see what I do though, the intellect I have is God given. In other words, I believe that God made me an intelligent being with the ability to reason and understand and think. And, and that's part of being made in the image of God. And I believe God made me with conscience and tremendous perceptive powers and everything like that. Uh, man, when we talk about being average, an, an average human being is so intelligent it's just unbelievable. I mean, if we, we, all we have to do is look at the animal, animal kingdom. Uh, we, are, we are very intelligent. And we have tremendous capacity to evaluate information and, and to go with it. And so I don't look at it as trusting in myself. I look at it in, like in the way David said in Psalms 139.14, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And so I'm saying the, the very thing that sometimes people say, well, God is putting us in them. I'm saying God already has it there. That you, our, my, God is a father of my spirit. But the decision-making capacity is strictly within me. And that I believe that whether I become more patient, more loving, more kind, that I will have to make the decision to put those things into practice. And I don't think there's anything mystical going to get in my mind and, and do it for me. And, and I think when I look at Christians, I see different degrees of all of these qualities depending on the effort they put forth. And, and another thing, Alba, that has helped me on thinking this through, I'll give you an example of my, with, with my family. My stepfather was not a Christian. Now, he became a Christian uh, later on and died an elder in the church. But when mom married him, he was not a Christian. He drank. He used bad language sometimes. He played a lot of poker. And in fact, he was good at it. He, he, he brought money into the family. And so he was a man of the world. But he was, an, he, in, in some spiritual qualities, I have never known his equal. He was one of the kindest, 